This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So we're in a, uh, a series on the book of Acts. Uh, we're in part two uh, called Two Cultures in Collision. And uh, today my title is A World Full of Gods. A World Full of Gods. Uh, we live in a secular world, doesn't it? Where most people, if you ask them, they don't really believe in God. Uh, they, they believe that we're, we're materialists. That, that, we, that doesn't just mean we're addicted to stuff, which we are. But it means that we believe we inhabit this totally physical world, that, that the world you can see and touch is all there is. And um, we fence off the spiritual things uh, into, different, into small categories in bookshops and generally into small categories in our life. And this thing called religion, well, that's what a few weird people do, but actually it's on the decline and nobody really seriously uh, does religion. And we stay firmly on the, the materialistic side of the fence, comfortable uh, in our atheism as... Um, Tony Blair's press secretary once said to Tony Blair, we don't do God. And so, but I think that, that we're actually telling lies to ourselves. I think that we're pretending that we live in this secular world, there's no such thing as God. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but actually uh, that's not true. Tim Keller in this excellent book, which I've taken a lot of stuff from, uh, so just to reference it, it's called Counterfeit Gods. I've taken a few quotes from here, and it, it digs into a lot more detail. I was so tempted to preach the whole book, which would have been here about a week, but no... Okay, so he says this in his book. To contemporary people, the word, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down to statues in temples. The biblical book of Acts in the New Testament contains vivid descriptions of cultures of the Greco-Roman world. Each city worshipped a myriad of its favourite deities. There's Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Artemis, who will appear in our passage today, the goddess of fertility and wealth. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems or statues and rituals. Each one has its shrines and contemporary places where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of a good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, sex, power, money and achievement but the same idols we unconsciously worship in our society? We may not physically bow down to the statue of Artemis, but when, we, when we've raised money or sexual fulfillment to cosmic proportions, we worship nonetheless. Agreed? David Foster Wallace, in a quote that I've used loads, he was a, uh, he was a novelist, uh, committed suicide uh, about a year after he gave this address to a bunch of graduating students in the United States. He wasn't a Christian, but he said this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. That means without God, atheism. A, without, without uh, atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. An outstanding reason for some sort of divine God thing to worship is that pretty much, else, pretty much anything else will eat you alive. Now, I don't know why David Foster Wallace committed suicide, but I suspect that perhaps... 
the things he was putting his hope in, the things that he was finding for meaning, significance in life, didn't deliver and ate him alive. And so we're going to step back into, uh, into Acts 19, and we're going to find a world full of gods, and hopefully we'll learn some lessons for our world full of gods. So um, Acts 19 is, uh, is actually based in, in a, it's a city in Turkey now. Some of you might have even been to Ephesus. Um, but actually, it was part of the Greek-speaking world at the time, you know, the legacy of Alexander the Great and then the Roman Empire. And so that's where we're going to go. We are going to read the whole passage, but I'm not going to read it all in one go because it's just a long chapter and you will all be saying, I'll be here too long. So I'm not going to read that. But let's just remind us where we were last week uh, in Acts uh, 17. Uh, uh, Christopher uh, talked about Paul in Acts 17. And he said this, Paul was greatly distressed to see that the, world, the city was full of idols. People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship. As Paul goes around Athens, he sees temples and temples and temples and temples and temples. We don't know how many there were, but there were, there were, there were definitely tens, if not hundreds. There was one small city in um, northern uh, Italy in the Roman Empire where they found, did the archaeology, they found over 60 different deities mentioned in different things. And so, we, so we're in this world full of gods. And, 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 and religion, they didn't have this category called religion. They didn't do secular and religion. Everything for them was religion. Everything for them was, was about gods. Everything to them, gods were part of the fabric of everyday life. And so there basically were three different areas where uh, people worshipped. There were public temples. That's the pantheon. Pantheon means all the gods. Pantheon in Rome. Um, there, uh, there were temples everywhere. Big temples. Artemis, which is we're going to read in um, uh, in Ephesus, was the biggest temple, the biggest temple in the world. Um, uh, then there were the little household gods. If you watch Gladiator, you know he has his little household gods in his in his little pocket. Is that really non-culturally relevant now? Nobody's watching Gladiator anymore. But anyway, you know, he's got his little household gods and he puts them out and prays to them. They're his ancestors and he's doing that. And there's also kind of what we call mystic or magic cults where, where maybe soldiers, the, the officers would have this kind of magic cult or, or these other cults, a bit like Freemasonry today, uh, which is a mystical excuse me, satanic cult. Uh, and there were these different cults and that therefore... Religion was in everything. Ordering activities where everything was religious. Giving birth, eating, traveling, having a trustees meeting, going through town. Everything had a religious sense. They would pour out a glass of wine, a libation. They'd pour it on the ground as an act of worship to say, no, we want the gods involved in this. We want the gods involved in this. And what happened is in that culture, you weren't expected to choose one. You weren't expected to choose your team. Talking about my gods. Yeah, we weren't expected to choose your team and not and hate the other teams. You, 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 could, you embraced them all. So it, wasn't, it was fine to worship Apollo, Artemis, uh, Saturn, the Roman Emperor, your great-grandfather, some, uh, some weird mystic. You could worship them all. It was fine. In fact, it, if you didn't worship all of them, that was seen as bad if you wouldn't worship all of them. So you didn't think, which one do I really believe? Which one do I worship? You worship them all. And the relationship with gods, and it's interesting because I think we still do a little bit of this today. The relationship with gods was transactional. I give you something and you give me something. 
So I will go to your temple. I will be diligently follow your rituals. I will do my animal sacrifice or financial sacrifice or sexual worship or whatever to honor you, however you want to be honored. But I expect you in return to bless me. I expect you in return to, 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 to keep me safe from disease and defeat and dishonor and death. I expect you to, to turn up. And if you don't turn up, that's because I've offended you. But I can't trust you because I've got to keep blessing you. I've got to keep feeding you with the things you want. And I'm hoping that you're going to bless me and my family and my trade and my city. And that was everybody. It wasn't like there was a few people that did that. That was everybody. In the Greco-Roman world, that was everyone. Apart from one weird bunch. The Jews were a weird bunch. That's not an anti-Semitic statement, no. It's just a fact. In those days, they were viewed as a weird bunch, and they're still viewed as a weird bunch. We're actually part of the line of the weird bunch. You know, we're the weird bunch now, but let's get to that in a moment. And they basically didn't worship at temples. They didn't have household gods. They, they, they were monotheists. They believed in one God. In fact, they, they, because they didn't believe in all the other gods, they were called atheists. Well, where are your gods? I can't see your gods. There's no statue of a god. You must have no god at all. And they worshipped the god of, uh, of, the, of the, the Bible, Yahweh, according to these two first commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words... Whether uh, it's inclusive in the Roman world, no. If you're, a, uh, if you're a follower of Yahweh, it's exclusive. You don't worship other gods, it's just this one. And you shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above or in earth beneath. You shall not bow down and worship them. So that's our context, okay? Happy? A little bit of history? If my son was here, he'd say, oh, I love a bit of history, Dad. Okay, so, let's, uh, so we're in the passage, we're in uh, um, Acts 19, and uh, let's, uh, let's press through. So, Paul entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. I think my preachers are long. No, I think he probably had a break in between. <laughs> Arguing passionately about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate and refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. That's the kind of shorthand. They hadn't, it hadn't become Christian, it was just the way. So Paul left them and took the, took the disciples with him. So presumably he's got some Jews uh, who were following, some God-fearers who have become followers of Jesus. Still felt, they still saw themselves as Jewish. They didn't see themselves as a separate group. You didn't like leave the Jewish church and go start to the Christian church. They still saw themselves as, as Jewish and, and with all of that. Uh, and he takes them, to, um, takes them to the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, they had daily uh, lectures in the hall of Tyrannus. He probably rented it in the afternoon bit like us when the school's not needing it we can use it uh, and he went they, this went on for two years and all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia I think I don't know if that's all of them uh, I don't know what, what Luke means by all but he certainly means it's had a huge impact all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord and then this is this crazy little bit it says God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handcloths and aprons that touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured uh, of evil and evil spirits left them. I don't know what people made of Paul. I mean, he wasn't like impressive by all accounts. He was quite, I think he was quite a small guy. I think he was quite short-sighted. Uh, he, he, he wasn't really that, he wasn't that great orator. I mean, he was interesting, but I don't think he was a great orator. But yet he's having huge impact. He's having impact in the, in the synagogue, teaching people about Jesus. And then he goes across the road to this lecture hall in this university and he's, he's lecturing and he's like, 
sharp as a, uh, as a pin, this guy. He's bright. He can argue about the best philosophers. He knows his Jewish Bible. He knows his Greek philosophers. He can argue with anyone. He can, uh, he can persuade you from your point of view, as we saw last week. But he's also making tents for a living. He's not getting rich like the, the priests of, the, uh, of, of the, um, the kind of Roman Empire or... You know, some church leaders today, I wish. No. Uh, some, you know, he's not getting rich on this. He's actually making tents. He wears aprons, and every time he's like, he's working away in the heat of the sun, he wipes his, he wipes his head on these cloths. And people would take these cloths and aprons and lay them on somebody who was sick, and they'd get well. Everybody is like, wow. It says their, their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. I mean, what's amazing about Paul, and I think I'm going to talk about this in a few weeks' time, not in the series and Acts, but just generally. What's amazing about Paul, he's not just a Bible guy, he's just not a book guy. He's also a Holy Spirit guy, he's a power guy. And that's the churches he planted, and that's what we believe the churches should be like. So if you come to this church because you think, oh, I'd like, I like the worship, but the preaching, I'm not going to take it. Oh, I like the preaching, but I don't really want to encounter God in worship. No, we want to be all of those things, don't we? few people say, yeah, that's why I'm going to preach in it, because I want you all to say yes in future. Okay, and so what happens is there's this massive kind of like boom, something's happening about Paul. So verse 17, carrying on. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. Why were they seized with fear? Because that was the basis of how you related to your gods. The one most powerful is the one who got your attention, the one you worship. And suddenly, here's Paul, who says he's the servant of this God who rules the whole earth, who died as a, was a carpenter, who died on a crucified. They're all like scratching their head. But, but, but when this, these things are happening, when, when power is impacting people who believed in the spiritual realm all the time, they, they suddenly like, wow, they were seized with fear. And the name of the Lord was held in high honor. Now, many of those who believed came and openly confessed what they'd done. That's how you become a Christian. You don't say, I'm going to just attend the church. There's a sense where to become a Christian, you repent of what you've done. You say, I have lived this way. I've worshipped these things or put my heart or trust in these things. And now I'm putting my trust in Jesus. And it says many did that. And then it says a number. So we don't know how many it was. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. They calculated the value of the scrolls came to a total of 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely. Now, book burning is a little bit controversial, isn't it? So that's not what happened in Ephesus. That's what happened where? Nazi Nazi Germany, 1933. In fact, one of the books that was burned there says, first you burn books and then you burn people. And obviously it's Holocaust Memorial Day last, uh, 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 last week or so. And burning books is like this public demonstration that you want to destroy a group of people or want to destroy a group of ideas that, 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 that these things are not fit to be in this world. But what happens when, when Jesus' message, when Paul's message through, uh, uh, about Jesus impacts these people who've been involved in these sorcery cults or these mystic cults or these magic cults they suddenly say this is not it we are done with it and they didn't they don't just quietly get rid of their stuff they publicly burn them now just to give you a sense of uh, scale 50,000 drachmas a drachma is a day's wage so I asked Alexa and Alexa told me that's about 
3.5 million pounds worth of magic scrolls. That would have been a big fire. Everybody in Ephesus would have known this is a big fire. There's something going on here. In his book, Destroyer of the Gods. Have we got that quote? Oh, yes, we have. Larry Hurtado, it's a really good book. His book's called The Destroyer of the Gods. It's a bit of a dramatic title, but it's basically how Christianity destroyed the, the gods of the early uh, first century. And he says this, It's particularly noteworthy, therefore, that the magicians do not give or throw their books away, as the practice of magic is against the truth of the Christian way of life. Hence, not only does the public action prevent the books from being used by others, it's also visibly and dramatically enacts the irreversible, irreversibility of the practices, practitioners' indulgence and confession. Books once burned can never be retrieved. What happens, though, is their repentance is dramatic. They, 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 jack, they get rid of, they change their living. They, they quit their job. Everything that gave them wealth and identity and meaning and purpose is burned. They say, we're done with that. We're done with that. I remember um, a friend of mine who, uh, in London, uh, a guy called Pete, had somebody uh, come to his church who, who was a Freemason. Probably that's why I mentioned it at the beginning. They're involved in Freemasonry. And don't believe anything about Freemasonry. It's all just a nice little uh, gentleman's club that you know, just helps you to do better in business. The, the deeper you get in, the darker it is. And this guy was deep in. Became a follower of Jesus. And, um, and he, burned his, he burned all his regalia. He burned his regalia. And one of the things that the Freemasons have done is... You, you make this vow over your heart that if you re- renounce Freemasonry, something will happen to your heart. This guy burns his books and I believe comes a follower of Jesus. But just to show you the, 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 the power that we're working with, he died three months later of chest cancer. This is real stuff. This is what was happening. They were in a power conflict and he said, I'm done with that. Now I believe he went to glory. But I've known people uh, that in the old days when pornographic magazines were actually printed rather than snuck away on your phone, burned stashes of magazines. I am done with that. I've known drug, drug addicts symbolically burn their equipment. And I'm not suggesting that the way that we, what we should do is we should get a little fire here, although I'm into fire pits. We should get a little fire pit and we should all bring our stuff and burn it. But what I'm saying is there's something about turning from sin that is irreparable and saying no more, never again. It's not like, oh, I'm turning from sin, but actually I'll keep my little stack of mystical stuff and I'm going to pop back there again occasionally. No, there's a radical transformation and a radical turning from sin. And this radical turning of sin, the town knew about it. Ephesus knew about it. Ephesus knew about it. There's a public fire and a transformed community taking place. And a riot ensues. I was going to call it I Predict a Riot, which is a song by a band that supports Leeds United. And When We Win, which has been since about like November, they play that at the end of the game. Uh, I'm hoping they play it again today, but no. Anyway, so the I Predict a Riot, and this is what it says. So let's read this. This is the, the main bit. We'll, we'll punch through and then we're done. 
It says, about that time there, dis- uh, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, Demetrius means devoted to the goddess, who made silver shrines of Artemis, we'll come back to who she is in a minute, uh, brought in lots of business for the craftsmen there. She called them together along with the, uh, he called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole of Asia. He said that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Amen. There is, no, there is da- danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in uproar. The assembly was in confusion. Some, some were shouting one thing and some another. Many of the people did not even know why they were there. <laughs> uh, I, I won't make comment there. You laughed it without comment. They were all in unison about, uh, for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk uh, quietened the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men, that's Paul and everybody here, and they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed the goddess. If then Demetrius and the fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anyone, the courts are opened and there are proconsuls, they can press charges. After this, he dismissed the assembly. Let's go into this then. So let, let me talk about Artemis. Artemis is Greek, uh, Diana is, is, is Latin, so Temple of Diana, Temple of Artemis. Uh, and, and basically, I think we've got, I've got some bullets, I'll just race them through for you, if you can put them up. So Artemis, that, the head was a huge meteorite. A black, I don't think that's the original statue, by the way. Uh, the head was this huge black meteorite that had fallen from heaven. That's what Demetrius said. It's like this meteorite has come down from heaven. It's like, obviously, if you, see a huge, if you believe in, in, in spiritual realm, and you see this massive meteorite come down from the sky uh, and like a big fireball and land, you know, that's a sizable meteorite. You know, the one in Winchcombe, uh, I don't know who anyone lived there, but that was like that size and everyone raved about it. This is big. And they carved that into a head of a woman and called it Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And then on her, on her body, there were all these kind of, what some people say are breasts, some people say are bull's testicles, because basically she's the goddess of fertility. Uh, they were goddess of fertility, and they called her the queen of heaven. They called her the saviour. In other words, she's the one who's going to keep the city safe. She's the one who's given us gives meaning and purpose. And... Um, the worship was chanting allegiance. So when they chant for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. If you went there, that's what they did. It's like, you know, it's like the football fans singing and singing and singing. They're chanting their allegiance. They're chanting their allegiance. There's feasting. So when they brought the, sac- when they brought the sacrifices, a little bit was kept for the, for the priests. But basically, if you like a big, bring a big bull, then you'd invite all your friends. You'd have a, a big feast. The other stuff went on, we'll talk about that in a minute. They used to make these silver statues that you could buy, keep them in your house, but also you'd often gift them to the priests that were there. The worship in this, uh, 
in this temple, which was about the size of a football pitch, biggest in the world, was ritually erotic. Eunuch priests, you know what that is? Yep, just nod, okay. Ask me afterwards if you don't know what that is. And then female prostitutes were there for sex as worship. The men would go to the temple and they would have sex with the men or the women, depending on their preference, because there was no preference in, in Greek culture, Roman culture. You did what you want. And they went to the temple and did that. And they did that and they gave and they feasted and they cheered and chanted and had sex as a promise of fertility and wealth and healthy long life and sexual fulfillment and protection against pregnancy and childbirth. Interestingly, in Timothy, if you read the book of Timothy, Paul says, and women will be saved to childbirth. It's not about that. These are women who were in that temple, were probably, who potentially had given their money to keep themselves safe in childbirth. Obviously, women died in childbirth a lot in their first century. And he's saying, don't worry, women will be kept safe in childbirth if you keep following Jesus. Because you can feel a bit of the tension. You can read, the, read, the book, read that bit in Timothy. And there was massive wealth and power to Ephesus because the temple uh, became the world's largest bank. So we've got a lot of gods here in this uh, setting. We've got, we've got health and wealth and sexual fulfillment and long life and power and economics. This temple was like the, the center of economics and culture and entertainment. And Demetrius is not happy about it. He's not happy about it. Makes the makes it clear that the growth of the church in Ephesus is striking at the very heart of the cult of Artemis. This fellow Paul, this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people. He said the gods, that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Christians rejected the cult of Artemis and believe like Jews that worship should be exclusive. You should have no other gods before me. Paul is saying, isn't he? You can hear the second commandment in what he says, that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. But the problem with the Christians was they didn't just keep in their little synagogue and do their little worship. They were out there telling people in the marketplace, telling people in the temples, telling people that this God, Artemis, this center of our very culture, this most important thing to us is actually no God at all. And the silversmiths are not happy. The ones who made the little idols that you could buy and then sell on. Their gods are under threat. And they're chanting the name Artemis, but actually I don't think that their God, Artemis was truly their real God. If you dig deep down, their God was money and power. Their God was money and power. And it's really true, isn't it, that actually Artemis, because he's got so materially invested in this, he doesn't want to follow Jesus. He's not listening to Paul and saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's so invested with his money, so invested with his trade, so invested in who he is and what, the, what he gets from this that he can't hear it. It's a bit like the rich young man who comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, I've done this. And he said, well, give your money to the poor. And he says, the man went away sad. Money is a massive cultural idol. I'm picking it because it's in the passage, not because I've got a slam on you. You guys have done great in giving to chapel and stuff like that. But, but I just want to pick it up. Demetrius says he's devoted to the goddess. That's what his name says. But the real reason... The real reason he's angry, the real reason he wants to de destroy Paul is because his God 
his security, his saviour in money is being threatened. There's a different way the way that the early church dealt with their money. If you had money in the Roman world, you use it to sit at the top of the pyramid to exploit others, to, to, to make sure that you got your way. But the early church were different. They shared their money. They ate together. The very poorest and the very richest ate together. The elite met with the downtrodden Gentiles. The rich Gentiles met with the downtrodden slaves. Women empowered, as I spoke about the other day. There was something different about the way they did money. They opened up their homes. They cared for the poor. When people were suffering and hungry, they gave their money away. And that was massively countercultural. The Christians refused to sacrifice and purchase silver offerings. Because they weren't looking for promise of blessing. The pregnant women no longer brought their offerings to the goddess. They didn't trust Artemis to keep them safe in childbirth. They trusted Jesus. They trusted Jesus at his word. You cannot serve both God and money. There's an exclusivity about following God. There's not, you can serve that God and serve that God and you can still serve money. For where your treasure is, your heart is. It's still true today, isn't it? It's true for me. It's true for you that, that your money is a true indicator of what you, who your God is. What the biggest amount you spend tells you what the most important thing in life is. You might say, oh, no, 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 that's not, work. that's not how it works. That's just because the mortgage market. Where does your money go? Where does your money go? If you're gripped by the sacrificial love of Jesus then you'll be sacrificially generous with your money. You give it towards God and you give it to others. As I've said before, standing here, there's a, there'll be a cross in your giving. There'll be a sacrifice in your giving. But if, your money, if, the, if the story of your money says, well, actually, I've got other priorities, what does it say? If that is touched, are you like Demetrius that says, don't you touch my money? Don't you touch my Right. I remember one teacher. I remember one as a teacher. There's a college of, colleague of mine called Bruce. He was a, uh, not as smooth as the Bruce we've got. Uh, he, uh, a colleague of mine called Bruce. He was a DT teacher, and he was. He had a bit of a reputation for going out for heavy nights on the town. Uh, and occasionally, we're, uh, on a Friday, the teachers would have been in the pub. You know, all the teachers in the pub. Anyway, so we're in the pub. And he's probably had a little too. And he says he leans over to me in front of everyone and says, "Is it true you give 10% of your income to the church?" I said, is it really true, Bruce, that you spend 10% of your income on, on heavy nights out? He does a slightly tipsy calculation. And he said, well, I won't say what he said. It, 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 there was a few, few words before this actual comment. He said, I do. I do. He said, absolutely, I do. And so I said to him, you give your money to your God, Bruce, and I give my money to mine. And he said, fair play. Because he knew the story of your money is really the story of your life. And we live in a 21st century consumer society, and we don't have temples, but you know, if you go to the Trafford Centre, that looks like a temple to me. That's a, a, a shopping mall in, in, in Manchester for those that, you know, what's the latest one here? What's the nearest one here? I don't know. There isn't anything. Cribs Causeway, thank you. If you go to Cribs Causeway, it kind of it feels like a temple, doesn't it? It's got these arches. I preached about it elsewhere. 
And, and, and our, our society is full of the rituals and material, materialism telling us the more stuff, the more comfort, the more money, the more we spend on our house and our holidays. And I've just booked a holiday. I'm not having a slam at someone. I'm not saying you can't have a house or a holiday. The more we'll be fulfilled. Even as I'm saying this, I'm feeling sorry, Nate. Sorry. Oh, I wanted that holiday. But we can't afford it. No, I want that holiday, but we're giving it to the chapel. No, I want that holiday. It's a daily battle, isn't it? For Jesus followers to refuse to worship at money's temples. To not to sacrifice our time or our family. You know, sometimes people go for jobs and they expect you to be there all the time. All available all the time. And you might not see your kids. You, you, you go out in the dark. And the kids are in bed. And you come home in the dark and the kids are in bed. And they think that's normal. You're supposed to, you can sacrifice your kids because that's what you're supposed to do. Or you sacrifice your integrity. Look, everybody does that. We're all doing that. Don't worry about it. Sort it out. You sacrifice that for money's empty promise of salvation and happiness, fulfillment and identity. Worship in the first century Greco-Roman world required rituals. You could do what you want. You could give your money to the temple and then do what you want. There were no moral or ethical demands on worshippers. So the Roman world, with all its gods, with all its world full of gods, was morally and ethically corrupt. They had their law. That's what we find at the end of the passage. Look, if you want to take these guys to, to court, there's a law. But in terms of personal moral integrity or ethical integrity, there was none. If you were in power, you could do what you want. Sleep with who you want, rape with who you want, take what you want, do what you want. Twenty-first century gods make that same promise. You can do what you want. If it feels good, do it. We make no moral or ethical demands on us. Don't tell us what to do. Don't tell us how to behave. Don't tell us what to do with our money. Don't tell us who to sleep with. Don't tell us about who to care for. We will do what we want. Don't come. Don't come telling me, making ethical demands on me. And they expect a Christianity that's like that, don't they? They expect a Christianity that's so inclusive that all behaviours are allowed. You know, because God is love. Don't make ethical demands on me. If I want to have that relationship, you better bless it in church. But in the Christian community, belief in Jesus impacts behaviour. Love for Jesus begins to and create in us Christ-like character. So what happened in Ephesus is the Christian men, and there was suddenly a lot of them, did not visit Artemis Temple. There were no sex with male and female prostitutes there. There was no sense of, I'm going to go to the temple looking for sexual fulfillment. They acted in line with Jesus' teaching that the only context for sex was a lifelong, faithful marriage between one man and one woman. Now, we don't have temples of Artemis, but there are temples. A click away. A lap dancing club in race week away. Sex trafficking in race week away. I sleep with my, the secretary from the office because I can't help it. And we'll sacrifice our children and our families and our integrity we lie and cover up. Because, you know, 
We don't believe in a religion that has real boundaries because we're just like the first century. We don't believe that there, there are boundaries. And if I want to bring my sexual behavior into, into this church or that church or whatever, well, you better endorse it. Otherwise, there might be a riot. There might be a riot. You know, because the gods of sexual freedom have taught us that to love, it has to be sex. That you can't have love without sex. And we know that's not true. That it does matter who you sleep with. That it's not just like another form of entertainment. And if you say that, you're going to find the crowd on Twitter shouting, great is the sexual freedom of the Western culture. Great is the sexual freedom of the Western culture. Great is the sexual freedom of the Western culture. And if you teach Jesus' sexual ethic on marriage, and I'll say it again, the only context for, for sex is a lifelong faithful marriage between one man and one woman. Expect to be dragged in front of the authorities. And if you mention that the gods of sexual freedom and the gods of sexual revolution are eating society alive... But if you say that, people are going to, if you say that outside there, I mean, even this, you know, this is controversial, I realize. There might be a riot. There might be, take him out. This guy is destroying our culture. And I would mention it before, I read a book in the summer called The Myth of the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. I quoted it before. She's a, a radical feminist, not a Christian. She talks about how unmoderated sexual freedom has not been great for women. Women abused, women trafficked. It's messed up the world. And it's promised us that you'll be fulfilled. Let's land here. Money and sex aren't the only idols in our culture. You can take anything. I'm only mentioning those because they're in the story. You can take anything and set it up in the place of Jesus and make it your God. You can take your family, your career, your success, your good looks, your intelligence. <laughs> you can trust whatever as your savior to keep you secure, to give you happiness, significance, meaning, and purpose. You might say, well, I'm not struggling with my money issues, and I'm not struggling with sexual freedom. I'm not struggling with that. But you might have done something else. David, Paul, David Paulson, in his book, The Idols of the Heart, writes this. Hopefully I can read this quote correctly. The most basic question which God poses each human heart. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title, that means ownership, to your heart's functional trust? Preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear and delight. What's taken hold of your trust, your preoccupation, your loyalty, your service, your delight? What is that thing? Ask your heart some questions to bring the idle systems to the surface. Ask these as I say, answer these in your heart as I say them. To who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for, for power and success? What one thing, if you lost it, 
would make your life no longer worth living? What in your life, if threatened, makes you like Demetrius rise up in anger? These questions tease out whether we serve God or idols, whether we look to salvation from Christ or false saviors. Hard-hitting. It's so easy to find a household God. My child's education, my child's success, my child's relationship. It's so easy to find a, a little God of your own that says, if only, if only it was this, if only I was married, if only I could explore that relationship, if only, if only I was successful, if only my church was big, if only I was an international conference speaker, if only I was a minor Christian celebrity, if only... And the thing we said at the beginning is that all these gods will eat us alive. All these gods will eat us alive. You know, I used to be good looking. Not so much. And they're going to bury me in the ground at some point. I used to feel I was clever and then I read a few quotes out on a Sunday morning. You know? I used to feel I could be successful and then church didn't grow to thousands. Stayed just a nice size. And sometimes you get angry when people challenge the things that you thought. Even though it's ministry, suddenly it had slipped in the wrong place and I'd had, I've got, I had to keep forgiving and I've got to keep saying, Jesus, it's all about you and if nobody knows my name, that's still fine. Let's finish with this. Bando, you can come back. There's a bit in Revelation where Jesus talks to the church in Ephesus, that's this church. And I was thinking how to finish that, and I'm praying this morning, how do I finish that? And this just came into my mind, so I'm, I'm assuming it's from Jesus. He says to the church, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. It's all gone a bit cold, hasn't it, with Jesus? just slipped in amongst the other gods and, and I'm speaking to myself sometimes and it's just gone cold consider how far you've fallen repent like those sorcerers, repent like those early Christians and do the things you did at first if you do not repent I will come and remove the lampstand of my presence from its place. One of the things that I felt most recently is, God, where are you? In the closeness of my prayer times, where are you? In the times of worship in church, God, where are you? And I've had to examine my heart and say, have I put something else there? And I'm not saying I haven't, but my heart, the bottom part of my heart says, Jesus, it's you that I want. When it's all said and done and time slips through, Jesus, it's you that I want, you only. No other God will I serve. So we're going to break bread now. And I thought about this and I thought, actually, there's something different about the God we serve. All other gods will eat you alive. They're all going to demand your life from you. Your money, your success, your sexual fulfillment, your f- 
everything ultimately is going to demand your life from you and empty you out. But our God says, come, let me fill you. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. After supper, he took the cup and said, this is my blood, shed for you. So the blood of the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. Jesus asks us to come again and again and to say, Jesus, it's you that I want. To say again and again, it says, Paul writes in Corinthians after those words I've just quoted, he says, let each person examine themselves so that we do not eat in an unworthy manner. Let's just do that now. Let's just be quiet and just examine ourselves. Have we popped to the local idol temple of our heart? It's time to repent. It's time to come and eat in a worthy manner. And Jesus, we don't come transactionally to you. We don't say, well, if I give you this, you better bless me. We come because we love you. Because there's no one else like you, Jesus. There's no other God that pours out life. So we come. We come repentant. We come in faith. We come, we know that we're forgiven and loved and accepted and filled. So let's do that. Let's come, let's take bread and wine. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.